You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning, Bethel. Well, I'm, I'm Jason, uh, Jason Ellis, and uh, I'm one of the elders at Bethel. Uh, my wife and I regularly attend the South Campus. And in fact, she's there this morning with our daughters. She leads in uh, one of the Sunday schools for the youth group there. We're going to continue our summer psalm series. As you know, we're going to be in Psalm 90 today. So if you want, you can flip there. But while you're getting there, I want to tell you a story. Uh, on, on Christmas Eve, 1895, so quite some time ago, in Asheville, North Carolina, George Washington Vanderbilt II opened his newly constructed home to his friends. It had taken six years to build, and it was a 178,000 square foot mansion. It's pretty big. He named it Biltmore. Perhaps you've heard of it or even visited it. In 2012, my wife and I, we took a trip to the Great Smoky Mountains. We stayed in Gatlinburg, and we we hiked a bunch, we had good food, enjoyed our time there. And one of the days, we traveled across the state lines uh, into Asheville to visit an apple orchard and to tour the Biltmore Mansion. And I'll tell you, it, it is quite a thing to behold. It has nearly four acres of floor space in the home. It has 250 rooms, 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, the dining table sat 64 people. It had electrical outlets and washing machines long before they were known elsewhere. It had an indoor swimming pool before modern filtration. They'd have to fill it up and drain it every few days. It had the world's first private bowling alley. It's three times larger than the White House. And the grounds are just as splendid. We were there in the fall, and there were rows upon rows of mums in this, this striping fall color. It was, it was beautiful. In fact, the grounds were designed by the same famous landscape designer who designed Central Park in New York City. Adjusted for inflation, it cost over $1 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollars to build when he built it. Basically, it's a castle, except I've actually toured castles that are smaller than this. It is huge, all right? And you can visit it too. You can stay in one of the many hotels and inns on the property. You can enjoy the restaurants, the hiking trails. I think there's fishing. There's all sorts of stuff to do there. They've expanded it and added wineries and all sorts of things you can do. But there's one thing you can't do if you go there, all right? The one thing you can't do is you cannot stay in the mansion. No one stays in the mansion. No one lives in the mansion. In fact, no one has lived in the mansion since the 1950s. And even then, for the last two decades, it was just one divorced guy living in a small wing of this mansion. And before that, the property was so expensive for the wealthiest people in our country at that time that they had to sell tickets to tour it, to maintain it because of the cost of maintenance, upkeep, and taxes. You see, I remember as I toured it with my wife thinking, it's strange that America's largest private home, which is how it's advertised and how it's known, it, it isn't really a home at all. You know, nobody relaxes there. Nobody goes home from work and kicks their feet up there, lays on the couch. No one barbecues there, plays with their kids there. Nobody sleeps there. Nobody finds their rest in this home. And, and frankly, no one did for very long. 
It's a beautiful place. It's a, it's a testament to craftsmanship, and it's worth visiting, but it's more a museum than it is a home. And when we turn to Psalm 90, and what we're going to find is the people of Israel are likely at the time of the writing of the psalm, they are in the wilderness. They are wandering. And they are a people without a home, longing for home, longing for rest, and not going to find it for some time. Now, you don't have to own a mansion to know that our homes never bring us lasting rest, right? I feel like between rain and wind and heat and pests and stuff just wearing out and breaking down, there's always something to do in your home, right? And as we go through Psalm, I want you to think about where we find rest. Let's, let's look at Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. First of all, Psalm 90, well, I'll begin by reading it. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 is the only psalm attributed to Moses. It, it might very well be the oldest psalm. We don't know because many of them are anonymous. But it, it's written by the same man who wrote the first five books of the Bible, notably Genesis and the creation account, which we're going to see kind of echoed through this psalm as we move through it. I want us to consider, though, who the original audience was. Certainly it's for our ears today. It's for us to read and to know and to know our God. But originally this psalm was written by Moses for the people of Israel to receive. And it's likely written at the time after they had been unfaithful and unwilling to enter the promised land. Do you remember the story of the 12 spies? You know, they passed through the Red Sea. They've been delivered out of Egypt. It's time to go into the promised land. They send a man from each tribe, these 12 spies, to spy out the promised land, and they come back. And although two of them, Caleb and Joshua, say we can do it because God will do it for us, 10 of them are, are scared that the inhabitants there are too large, too numerous, too powerful. The city's too fortified. We'll never take it. And so they even say, God, we can't go there. What about the kids? What about our children? And so God punishes them. He disciplines them. He says, now you won't go there. And you'll wander in this wilderness, this desert for 40 years. In fact, you'll all die off in this desert. And your children, the very people you were worried about, they will go into the promised land. They will take it. They will subdue it. And they will own it. So the original audience of this psalm is the Israelites. But it's really kind of two groups of people, okay? You have this older generation who are waking up every morning in the wilderness. Surely with God's provision, the manna, right? The quail, the water. But daily living in the wilderness. And we know they didn't like it because they complained about it a lot. And they know that because of their own sin, they have themselves to blame, they will never know this land they want to know. And then we have the younger generation who sure, someday they'll know it, but they're going to spend most of their lives, most of their adulthood, living this hard life, just waiting in some sense for their life to begin, waiting to finally know the blessing that has been promised to them and was promised long ago to their forefathers. That's our original audience. You know, the psalm is styled a prayer of Moses because it really is more of a prayer 
perhaps one he taught them to pray in response to their sin, to be reminded who God is. And as we look at verse one here, this is gonna set the tone as we move through the harder and darker parts of this psalm. First of all, it's a prayer of Moses made that God says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What that must have meant to these people. First of all, let's remember who we're talking about. These are Israelites. Every one of them is a slave, recently liberated. Every one of them. You know, Abraham had many descendants, but all of his descendants from Jacob were slaves at this time. They were all slaves. Most of them had spent their lives making bricks for Pharaoh. That's what they did. That's what they did. They had heard the stories. They'd heard the prophecies. They knew the promises. They didn't yet have the scriptures. And they were hopeful for this land to come. So what does it mean for Moses to teach them that God, you are our real dwelling place? What, what a comfort and what a warning that is. You see, it's going to serve as an admonition, first of all, for the younger generation. What it must be like to be that younger generation to, to think, you know, I am ready for this time in the wilderness to be over. I'm, I'm ready for the land of milk and honey, all right? I'm ready to get out of the desert. Then I'll finally have everything I need, right? Then I will finally know the peace and rest that really we all long for. What is life but in some sense a, a journey to find rest and in, in anything that can really provide it. But the psalm tells us at the front, the promised land to come is not the dwelling place. God is the dwelling place. It's this admonition. It's this warning. You know, growing up uh, in the 90s, I watched VH1. My parents would probably watch that more than MTV. Um, and they had this show called Behind the Music. Do you guys remember that? Anybody ever watched that? Behind the Music. And if you didn't ever see it, it's basically the same story every time, all right? It's this retrospective on some famous rock band or artist who, you know, they came from nothing, they got big, they got famous, they got money, they got powerful, and then they squandered it all, usually in drugs and bad living like the prodigal son, and it, it doesn't go well. And they finally re realize eventually that none of those things satisfy. You know, in, in some ways, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've read that, is the original behind the music. You know, Solomon says, I tried it all. You know, I'm good looking, son of two good looking people. I had all the money, he had all the women, he had all the power. He, he says he built all the garden. He did everything he could do. And in the end, he found that it did not fill. In fact, he said it was chasing after wind. It was vanity. It was empty. And at the beginning of this psalm, we're learning that even the promised land won't be their final dwelling place. Now, it's also, it's also an encouragement to to the older generation who, who know that they will never enjoy the promised land. Do their lives no longer have meaning now? Are they just gonna tough it out in the desert and that's it? But God is encouraging them that no, even if they never make the promised land, their real dwelling place is the Lord. And what kind of dwelling place is it? We look at verse two. Our God is a God who's been here since before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth and the world. We're reminded that this is the same writer who wrote the creation account. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Meaning, God does not have a birthday. All right? God, God did not start. All of us have birthdays. And the scriptures teach us we will go on forever, even either eternally with God or eternally apart from God. But God has always been. 
from eternity past, all the way through, he has always been and always will be. So that is the security of this dwelling place. Let's move to verses 3 through 6. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We see here that God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. That just like it says in Genesis, from dust you came till dust you shall return. God returns men to dust. Our lives are short. But for him, time means nothing. A thousand years in God's eyes are but as yesterday when it's past. Or a watch in the night. Here, Moses has in mind what it would be like. You know, he becomes a shepherd later on in Midian. What it would be like to stay up in the middle of the night, to keep watch, to make sure no... No body or, or no predators come into the camp and threaten the, the fold of sheep. But for God, a thousand years are like a watch in the night, which if you're sleeping until it's your turn, passes instantly, right? And someone wakes you up. Verses 5 and 6, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes. In the evening it fades and withers. Again, that imagery of the flood. Noah, of course, the one who penned the flood account. I mean, we all know this, right? That uh, our lives come and they go quickly. He suggests there's this season where we're strong in the morning when we flourish, but in the evening we fade and wither and the grass passes away. We're, we're but dust. You know that really nine, all of us, we're made up of molecules, right? Cells. 99% of your body is just six elements. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, calcium, and phosphorus. That's what you're made of. You're made of dirt, all right? And that's not to insult you. So am I. Um, we're not precious because of what we're made of. We're precious because of who we were made by and whose image we were made. But, but God is humbling us here. Moses is reminding us we're only special because we serve a God who is special. Because we were made by a precious and beautiful artist. And because if we're saved, we were bought for a precious price by the blood of Christ. But our value and our hope is in God. There's nothing apart from him. So we see that life is short and fleeting. But why? Well, let's turn to verses uh, seven and eight. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Hmm. So life is short and it's our fault, is what he says. Life is short, we pass away because man is mortal, because of that first sin, because every one of us since that time has been born into sin. It's our nature until God changes us. And we're not, you know, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So in some sense, sin is the natural consequence of sin, but it's also the righteous judgment of a God who said that now all men will die. It's appointed unto all to die once. God rightly, our holy God, rightly punishes sin. Some translations for dismayed in verse 7 will say, we are terrified by your wrath. And those that don't know the Lord should especially be terrified by his wrath. Now, this isn't the terror of a villain. This is the terror of a holy and good God, a, a judge, a, a lawgiver 
the terror that a, the guilty man should feel in his presence. Let's look at verse 8 there. God sees all our iniquities. You know, I don't know if anyone's going to preach on Psalm 139 this summer, but in that psalm, David says, Where shall I flee from your presence? And he talks about going to the heights of mountains, to the depths of the ocean. Where can we go to escape God? There is no escaping him. He sees us. He even sees our secret sins, it says in verse 8, which has in mind a couple of things. One, what you probably think. That God sees a sin you would think no one could witness because no one was there to see it, or maybe because it happens in your head or in your heart, so no one is there to know it but you. But, but more than that, God sees the sin that you don't even realize you've committed. Did you know in Leviticus, there, there's provision for making sacrifice for sin you didn't even know you committed? When you think about it, if we were to even live up to what we think are God's standards, when you, when you consider that sin isn't just not doing all the things you shouldn't do, right? But it's loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do, do you do that with every waking moment? None of us can live up to that standard. Our sins are, are ever before us. So at this point, the psalm, we're, we should be feeling pretty low. Life is short. We're going to pass away and it's because of our sin. Well, what kind of life will it be? Well, let's look at verses 9 through 11. And I, look, I hardly think Moses had to remind the Israelites at this time that life was hard, but here we go. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Oh, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we... We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Hmm. You know, Moses is recording here that, you know, we live 70, maybe 80 years, and that's about right, which is interesting. It's, that's a tenth. That's a tenth of what Adam and the earliest inhabitants of earth lived. I often wonder what, what, what they would think, Adam and Eve, to learn that all of their descendants are living a tenth of their lifespan. But of course, even a thousand years wouldn't be what God originally designed us for, to live forever with him. He says, but life is hard too. And life is hard. Toil and trouble. He probably has in mind all the hard labor in Egypt, all the labor living in the wilderness. Now in our country, we're pretty blessed. And even though maybe we don't toil the way slaves would in Egypt, certainly we don't. I don't know that life isn't hard, right? Maybe not physically as demanding for many of us, but there's still so much to cry over. You know, my day-to-day -day job, I'm a judge downtown in the courthouse, and from time to time, someone will be before me for something very sad in their life, and they'll start crying. And they'll, they'll apologize, say, Judge, I'm sorry, I'm crying. And what I always say is, it's okay. It's, this is worth crying over. But frankly, there's, there's plenty to weep over in this life. And God isn't saying that there isn't here. He says, we fly away soon. You know, there's an author, Anne Lamott. I don't know that I can command her or commit, uh, commend, I should say, commend her books to you. But she was asked an interesting question. She said, what do you think will be the biggest change a hundred years from now? And this is a fun exercise. 
I mean, if you look back 100 years, so much has changed, right? Transportation, the spread of technology and information, medical science. Our lives are very different now than they were 100 years ago. But they asked her, what do you think would be the biggest difference 100 years from now? And she thought for a moment, said, 100 years? All new people. All new people. I mean, isn't that sobering? I mean, basically in 100, 120 years, every single house on this planet, if it's still standing, will be occupied by different people. Total reset, right? Everyone's just gone. Everyone's just gone. And we are meant to fill our smallness. Our, in some ways, our insignificance our weakness, our frailty. And in that, Moses asks in verse 11, and I don't think it's a rhetorical question, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? If this is our plot in life, if we are sinful, temporary, weak people, under the righteous judgment of a just and powerful God, how should we respond? Let's move into verses 12 through 13. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? How long? Have pity on your servants. There seems to be a connection throughout the Bible of recognizing that we are weak and that God is to be rightly feared as a just God, as a good father who rightly disciplines his own. And that leads to wisdom. He asked for a heart of wisdom. Reminds me of how Solomon asked for an understanding heart when he asked something of God. Now, verse 13 might surprise you. Return, O Lord. Return, where did he go, right? Now, when you hear that as, as a as a believer, after the New Testament's been written, maybe you're thinking, oh, Jesus, please come back. And, and certainly we, we long for that. But here, what Moses is talking about, he said, God, please return, turn back or relent. Please stop afflicting us or punishing us or disciplining us for our sin. Please, God, please have mercy on us. How long? How long must we suffer in the broken world? How long must we suffer the consequences of our own sin? Have pity on your servants. You see, up through verse 11, largely we're talking about the whole world. Everyone is fleeting. Everyone is temporary. Everyone is frail. But now we're talking about God's servants, God's people. This is a personal message for Moses. And we've talked about Israel, but think, let's think for a second. You, you probably know if you've been going to church, the life of Moses, but let, let's walk through it. Consider the life of Moses. Here's a man born in strange times to Hebrew parents who were slaves. Everyone was a slave. And he was, going, he was destined to die. All the Hebrew boys were being thrown in the Nile River because the Pharaoh feared them rising up. So his parents put him in the basket, sent him down a river, and in God's deliverance, he's adopted by the very family that would, would have him killed, by the daughter of the Pharaoh. So he... His sister's there, you know, watching over him, Miriam, you know, that's right. And, and she says, well, let me get someone to, to nurse him, to breastfeed him, to care for this child. And so his mother gets to do that until he's weaned, it says, which and we're, we're thought, it's thought that that's probably two to four years old somewhere around that time in this culture. 
So this little boy, I don't, what, the four-year-old's upstairs here? You know, he, he did get to live with his mommy and his daddy till he's three, four, and then he's taken away. What's, what would that be like? Not taken away to live with family or even other Hebrews, to live with foreign people, Egyptians, raised in their culture, I suppose with their gods. So he's torn away. What trauma that must have brought to him. Well, at least he gets to grow up in a palace though, right? He gets to grow up with all the privileges and the education and the wealth of Egypt, right? And he, he doesn't have to work as a slave, so he got the good life, right? But no, that's not what we see. By age 40, what we see Moses do, you know, he's lived his whole youth. Is he at peace? Has he learned to enjoy being this Hebrew boy in the palaces of the Pharaoh? Apparently not, because he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and he, he kills him. He kills the Egyptian. The Bible says he saw him beating one of his people. He identified still with the Hebrews because he didn't really fit in with the Egypt, Egyptians either. So he kills him, thinking perhaps he'll be received. But the next day, two uh, Hebrew slaves say, aren't you the guy that killed that Egyptian? We don't want anything to do with you either. So he runs off. Now begins another strange chapter in his life. This man who didn't get to stay with his parents, this man who didn't belong in the palaces of the Pharaoh, now he's run off to Midian, where he's going to live, not with his family he was born to, not with his adoptive family. Now he's living with another foreign people. And now life gets hard. Now he's a shepherd. Now he's got his hands in the dirt. Now he's working. But you know, maybe he's come to enjoy that, right? Maybe he'll find peace there. Maybe he'll finally know belonging. But I don't think he did. Because look what he names his first son. You know, he gets married, he has kids. He makes a life for himself. He names him Gershom. And the Bible tells us Gershom means sojourner. And Moses says, because I've been a sojourner, a traveler in a foreign land. Yeah, I'm sure as this city boy from Egypt, he's received real easy among the other shepherds in Midian, right? So that's his life. He lives to be 80. That's probably going to be it for him, right? And then God comes into his life in the burning bush. It's this amazing story. God uses him. He's going to go back to his people. Finally, this man who's always been out of place is going to be back with his people. But he goes there. He's not received easily. But God delivers them. They leave. They go into the wilderness. They're going to go into the promised land. But they don't get to go because of the people's unfaithfulness at first. So now he's going to have to spend time wandering in the wilderness. Once again, without a home in a sense. This man who's perhaps never really been at rest. Now he's wandering the wilderness. And then something terrible happens. Aaron and Moses are charged to bring water out of a rock for these people who are thirsty. And Moses, and I can only imagine how he fell. I mean, he's been living a hard life. In his anger, he does it in a way that God says, does not uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people. And this is in Numbers. He gets mad and strikes the rock twice. And so God says, now, Moses, you will not enter the promised land. What, what that must have, come on, God, no, right? No. Anything but that. I can put up with a lot of things, but don't you know, God, my whole life, I have been this man out of place? Please, please, please don't take this from me. And we know that's how he felt. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. 
And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. You go to the next verse. Do you have it? All right, I'll look it up. I left my Bible, I thought we had it. It's all right. Thank you. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, this is hard, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. No. God says no. I think it's almost implied he'd spoken to him before about it. Because our God is a merciful God. So here he is, this man who, I mean, never really fit in. It's a story of his life. And this is the man who at the beginning of this psalm says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Meaning, he's saying, you know, it, it's not that if I could have just stayed with my parents, then I could have known the lasting peace I've always wanted to know. Or, or maybe... You know, I had it pretty good in the palaces of Pharaoh. Maybe if I just found a way to fit in. Why, why couldn't I fit in? Why did I kill that man? But he's not saying that either. And he's not even saying, you know, I, I should have come to have enjoyed living the simple life as a shepherd. I, I mean, I met my wife there, had my kids there. Or the promised land. Why didn't I obey God? He's not saying even the promised land would have been his, his true dwelling place. He's saying, Lord, you have always been our dwelling place. You know, and maybe he even says it through tears. Maybe, maybe he's not saying it just to teach the Israelites, but to remind himself. Do you ever do that? I, I do that. Sometimes I have to repeat the word of God and claim the promises of God to remind myself. You know, God, do you really forgive my sins? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay, yeah, that's right. And we have to remind ourselves of the truth of the word. So if that's the truth, if, if this world will not satisfy, and if some of our prayers may not go answered the way we would have them answered, which, which is the case for Moses, how do we live? How do we live in this world? Verses 14 through 17. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as, for as many years as we have seen evil. And ultimately he would. And he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Meaning, may we and our children and our offspring know you, God. May we see you and know you and be in relationship with you. And finally, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a prayer for the here and now at the end. Meaning, you know, we are a people wandering in a wilderness, awaiting a promised land that's not quite here yet. I mean, why don't we just all pool our money together, buy some land somewhere, and hunker down until Jesus comes back, right? But that's not what the scriptures teach us. They teach us to live in this broken and fallen world, to be salt and light in this world, and to be 
encouraged that we have a dwelling place that is secure. And, and, and to be warned to not find our peace in the things of this world. You know, Rich Mullins says in one of his songs, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. We're meant to be unsatisfied with this world. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what Moses is saying. Lord, you're my real dwelling place. Now, what's the message to us today? Well, it's not that it's no big deal, that the hard things in this life aren't a big deal. They are a big deal. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say it's not real, but he says, take heart, for he's overcome the world. We're, we're to remind ourselves that if nothing satisfies, nothing lasts, at least God is our dwelling place and we're secure there. We are secure in the Lord. Which means, you know, in this life, you know, we, we may never find the affirmation and even maybe the love that we want in some of the relationships we have. We may never find the prestige or the respect or the financial security and the careers that we seek. We may not find the rest we want in the homes that we have. We may yet, and if we do, we can't put all our hope in them, but we can be at peace because God is good. As we come to a close here, I want to remember the final chapter of Moses' life, the final moments of his life, really. Do you remember? So the Israelites are about ready to enter the promised land, and soon Joshua is going to take charge of the people. Aaron's died, Miriam's died. He's kind of the last of the old guys at this point, Moses. And God leads him up a mountain, Mount Nebo. And in his mercy, he lets him look out. And to this day, on a clear day, you can still see this far, they say. And he can see the promised land. He can see all the way past where Jerusalem would be. He can, he can see the promised land. And then, even though the Bible says his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, meaning he was still healthy, still a strapping 120-year-old man, all right, he died. I think it's implied God took him. And it says the Lord buried him and we don't know where. So he, he saw the promised land from afar, but he never had it. And he died. But it's not a sad story. <laughs> because we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He died and went immediately into the presence of his God, of our God. The real promised land. And you know, that's our story too. It would be foolish to say, God will give you everything you want in this life. That's not our experience. And the people that get everything they ever think they want are never satisfied by it. But our story is laid out in Revelation 21.3. At the end, at the very end, Apostle John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.